0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. First of all, welcome to those of you who are visiting. Uh, If you don't know me, and you're not a visitor and you don't know me, my name is Joe Corey. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Shades uh, Valley Community Church. And uh, this summer, while our head pastor, Jonathan Hayes has been on sabbatical, We've had the opportunity to hear more regularly from our other pastors, Brad and Ed, and then also some uh, other guest speakers. So today it's my turn to uh, teach this morning, Um, but before I do that, I just want to thank Brad for giving me the opportunity and just let you all know that it has been a real privilege and honor um, to be asked to bring the word of the Lord to you today. Um, before we hear from God's word, I want to take a moment to remind you guys, uh, as an elder, I feel like I need to do this, that we regularly pray for you all, um, walking alongside you guys in prayer, even if you didn't realize that, has really been a profound privilege for me, and one of, it's really, I mean, it is the biggest joy that I've discovered I have as being an elder, um, so please, uh, I just want you to know that you guys are prayed for regularly, and, um. Don't be surprised if we email you or call you or grab you in the hallway and say, hey, what's going on? How can we pray for you? We're not, we're not being creepy. We're just, we, re- we really do care. Um, and so anyway, I just, wanna, just wanted to mention that. I also want to mention that as a layperson, uh, the process of studying and preparing for today uh, has been eye-opening. Uh, in my day job, I'm a college professor, and so I'm used to speaking on different topics in front of groups of people. But this just felt different this morning. Uh, Teaching on a topic like the family has felt far heavier than I anticipated, uh, and the stakes much, much higher. Family means a different thing for each of us. Uh, The picture we have of our family can change a lot over the course of our lifetime. Regardless of what this means for you today, we all have experience in belonging to a family. Whether you are married with children or married without children, single or widowed or an orphan, we all have a basic understanding of the family, and that has been shaped by our experience of it. So whatever your experience, I want to invite you to join me this morning in hearing from the Lord on this topic. So with this in mind, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Uh, please pray for me. I'm nervous, as you can tell. All right. Holy God, we just um, we invite your presence here this morning. We pray that uh, your word will ring true, that uh, we will have ears to hear what you are saying to us, and that um, I would just be a vessel for your word and your spirit. I just thank you for this community of believers, for this family, this church family, and just uh, invite you to speak into their lives this morning. Amen. So in March, my family, along with the Haif's, uh family, packed up our nine kids into two minivans. And with food and games, we headed for the north uh, woods of Georgia for a much-needed uh, week of relaxation. Although you can't relax very often much with nine kids, just FYI. <laughs> uh, as expected, our little caravan became separated as we drove through Atlanta. And so we were on our own. Uh, my my family and their family, to make it to a place that we'd never been. As we left civilization and drove into the woods, we discovered, Sarah and I discovered, that the Google Maps app on our phones directed us to the wrong location. So on top of this, um, we were far from any kind of phone service. And so since Sarah and I had not thought to bring a paper map, we found ourselves lost and with no way of knowing where to go. Frustrated and anxious, I turned around and headed for the nearest town in search of precious phone service, or at the very least, someone who might be able to give us directions. Unbeknownst to us, at the same time, Jonathan and Holly had already arrived at the house, and realizing that we were were late, they, they assumed, well, they knew that we were lost. So just as it started to get dark, Jonathan began to search for us. Fortunately, a short time later, he found us stranded, waiting in a McDonald's parking lot, where much to the joy of my family and my four kids, he was able to guide us to the right place. What we thought we could count on to direct us failed, and we found ourselves lost and in need of a better guide to show us the right way to go. I can't help but think of this story today as we've learned from the Proverbs together this summer. In the first sermon of the series, Brad showed us the Proverbs are not a set of rules, but instead they offer an infallible guide to living a Christ centered life. Over the course of the summer, the Proverbs have pointed out the importance of seeking wisdom, and they promise that those who find and hold on to it will be blessed. This promise is especially true in regards to what the Proverbs have to say about God's design for the family. In thinking about my own life, all of my greatest joys have taken place with my family. My family has been there to celebrate all of my biggest achievements. I'll never forget the moment I started my own family when I said I do to Sarah. Or the moment each of my four children were born. I have fond memories of backyard barbecues, family trips and holidays spent together. At the same time, almost every one of my deepest pains has occurred within my family. The loss of my brother and grandparents, the unexpected pain that came with my sister's divorce, other broken relationships, and a childhood surrounded by addiction. As you reflect on your own experiences, I'm sure this is also true for you. This morning, many of you are reeling because of relationships within your family. Some of you have recently experienced the loss of a family member and you are working through deep, deep sorrow. Some of you experienced separation or brokenness within your family and you don't know how these pieces will ever be put back together. Some of you long for acceptance from your family because you've never lived up to some unreachable standard. Many of you long for the chance to even have a family of your own. And many of you here today are in a season of life where your whole being is wrapped up in the care of someone in your family, and you are exhausted and drained, and too often you forget the joy that family can be and the promise that God shows through it. You don't need to search hard to find a long list of solutions for dealing with the family, a search on Amazon for the term self, self-help self family yields over a hundred thousand titles. If we limit our search to Christian self-help family, we're given less options but the the number still remains above 20,000 titles. For generations, television shows and movies have been filled with stories about the family. Some of these depictions are deeply troubling. Some are almost too perfect and just as troubling. And many depict the reality of the family for what it is a messy place full of flaws and triumphs, sin and grace. In our media-saturated, self-help, life-hack culture that is heavy on how-tos and five-steps, it is easy to see the earthly things around us and think they offer the right solutions to achieving peace and security within our families. But I often wonder if we too often replace the word of God with the word of man. And as a result, we actually end up far from the place where God intended us to be. This is why the Proverbs are so important. Unlike my Google Maps or everything else our culture offers, they will not fail us. The Proverbs offer us a key to life and speak to the profound idea of what it means to be a human. More importantly, the Proverbs are a valuable guide for how to be in healthy relationships with the creator of the universe. I confess this morning that I don't have all the answers. In fact, my wife Sarah will tell you that I'm far from them. But when we look at what the Proverbs and the whole of Scripture has to say about the topic of the family, we see a picture of God's design for family, and we see how God made the family to be a reflection of the gospel. So with this in mind, will you open your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs 13.22? So this proverb says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. When John Cagley asked me uh, for the text for uh, this morning's sermon, uh, I didn't feel like I could respond to him with the Bible. (laughs) Um... So I chose this proverb to be our starting point. Um, This is a tricky verse, because if we're not careful, it can too easily be understood within the transactional context of wealth and death. Instead, I think it's important to look at this verse within the context of all of the proverbs and scripture, because if we do this, it becomes a guiding principle for God's design for the family. So I'm a little bit of a rule breaker. My wife hates that about me, but... Um, and so instead of just focusing on this verse, I'm, we're going to use this as a starting point, and we're going to kind of jump around with the Scripture, including the text that you already heard, and so just bear with me. So we see the family as being an important topic throughout the Proverbs because the family unit played a pivotal role within ancient Jewish culture. The family was an incredibly tight-knit unit that would have been the life center for those within it. In this culture, large families were deemed necessary to conduct the family business, care for those in old age, and to carry on the family's place within the larger community. It was so important that even a household's servants and slaves were given a place within the family hierarchy. This is why, if you again think about this, this is why this would have been such a big deal for Peter and Andrew to leave their nets and to follow Jesus. By doing this... They would not only have been walking away from their jobs, they would have been leaving the security of their family and endangering the future heritage of their children and their children's children. Throughout the Proverbs, this is emphasized through a picture of the nuclear family with both parents sharing in the responsibility of training children. This is demonstrated by how the Proverbs are told, which is that of a father teaching his young son on behalf of himself and his wife. However, the Proverbs aren't just a training manual for young Jewish boys. In the very beginning of chapter 1, we see that it also addresses the wise, without the mention of gender, and so it's appropriate to believe that the book is intended for both male and female audiences, regardless of age. The authors intentionally use this literary device to emphasize that the whole book is relevant to the family structure and places a high value on it. Throughout the Proverbs, we see a number of ways issues related to the family are emphasized. This includes a number of teaching points centered on the family, such as Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19, which insists on the importance of a strong family structure and warns against anything that would erode it. Proverbs 4, verses 3 and 4, which teaches the place for instruction is within the family. Proverbs 30, verse 17, which teaches children to respect the teaching of their parents Proverbs 23, 13, and 14, which admonishes parents to discipline their children for their own good. Proverbs 20, verse 7, which warns parents to model godly behavior. Proverbs 10, 1, 15, 20, and 19, verse 13, which encourage children to choose wisdom over foolishness and shows what can happen as a result of making a wrong choice. And then Proverbs 18, 22, which emphasizes the importance of the husband and wife's relationship to the family union. I could, I could go on, there are dozens of verses in the Proverbs about the family. So we simply cannot overlook the topic of the family without the book falling apart. So if the context of the book is a call to seek wisdom, the, this wisdom must also be applied to our understanding of the family. I want to come back to the language of a father's relationship with his children because there is something we see throughout, this is something that we see throughout Scripture. I've often wondered why use this language instead of, say, the language of a king ruling over his people or of a general commanding over his soldiers. Why is this picture of a family relationship treated so important throughout the whole whole of Scripture? And more importantly, I guess I wonder, how does it inform us of our relationship to the creator of the universe? I'm convinced that we see this type of language used because the family represents a picture of the gospel and our relationships to it. The author and theologian Russell Moore writes in his book, The Storm-Tossed Family, and if you haven't read this, I would highly recommend it, The Storm-Tossed Family. It's really good. Russell Moore writes, The gospel informs our place in the family Because the gospel redefines two points at which the devil rages the most. Our identity and our inheritance. Okay, Our identity and our inheritance. And so I want to spend the rest of my time this morning looking at these two ideas. This idea of identity and inheritance. And how the family informs our understanding of them in relationship to the cross. In Matthew chapter 6... Christ teaches his disciples to pray by saying, You know, or excuse me, by saying, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I want us to think about that for a second. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. At the root of this statement um, is about who we are, it's about our identity and the inheritance we are promised. Christ follows his statement with the instructions of how to pray by giving us the Lord's Prayer. We all know this. It starts, Our Father in Heaven. When Christ teaches us to pray, Our Father, he is giving us a statement of who we are. And he is placing us into an intimate, familial relationship with God. He's giving us a statement of who we are and placing us into an intimate, familial relationship with God. Do you understand what is happening? By teaching us to say, our Father, Christ is telling us that we are the sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. That is an identity-defining statement. Two of the central questions we as humans commonly wrestle with are, who am I? And where is my meaning and purpose in life to be found? I've asked these two questions many times throughout my life, and I'm certain many of you here have as well. We can see that these questions point to our core identity. The author Paul Tripp writes, "...all of our actions and reactions are connected to who we think we are, who we think God is, what we think life is about, what we think is important, where we go to find help, and what we think or what we look to in order to give us peace, rest, and security." He goes on to say there are only two places for us to look for our identity. The first place is to look horizontally, which means searching for God, um, searching to, excuse me, which means searching to find yourself and your reason for living in something other than God. This could be in our possessions, our accomplishments, uh, our career, spouse, children, you know, you fill in the blank. The problem with this approach to our identity is that it doesn't work. Okay like it just it doesn't it does not work. These things were never designed to satisfy our hearts and to give us peace. Looking to these things as good as they may be only leads to disappointment, fear, anxiety and a desire for more power or control than any of us will ever have. As a college professor, I see the consequences of this almost every single day. I'm convinced this is the root of the desire that causes parents to place heavy burdens on their young children. It explains why, as parents, we feel angry or hurt when our kids disappoint us. It explains the hesitation and fear parents show when their children express a desire to follow God's leading into the mission field instead of a high-paying career. And sadly, I hear this one a lot from my students. They want to go into missions, but their parents dissuade them and ask them to go into Careers instead. It explains the pressure our children and young adults feel to have perfect grades and the intense anxiety they feel about finding a job or in what their future holds. It explains our drive to keep up with our neighbors spending, to have the perfect career, Instagram the perfect picture of life, know all of the answers, drive the right kind of car, and to look and dress a certain way. Friends, we see this all around us. We feel this ourselves, don't we? I know I do. This leads me to the other place Paul Tripp tells us we can look to find our identity, which is vertically. This means getting our identity from God, from his love, acceptance, constant presence, power, and forgiving grace. When we do this, our hearts become full and satisfied. We live with courage and hope. We don't live in fear, and we find joy and contentment in our circumstances. When we place our identity in God, our whole approach to life changes, and the people around us can see this. 2 Peter verse 3 and 4 promises us, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. When our identity is shaped by our Father in heaven, our lives become a reflection of Him. We see this dynamic happen all the time within our own families. I mean, think about it. Phrases like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, he's a spitting image of his father... These are common phrases that we use to describe how our children look or act. We see this idea play out in the Old Testament reading of this morning. In 1 Samuel 16, we are first introduced to David, the boy who would become the future king of Israel and from whose root Christ himself would come. In this passage of Scripture, the Lord asks Samuel to go to Bethlehem and to anoint a new king whom he has selected amongst Jesse's sons. In the scene, Jesse and his seven oldest sons come before Samuel, but none are selected. They're all passed over. Samuel is kind of surprised by this um, because in some of Jesse's oldest sons, he sees like they kind of look like kings, right? They're tall and handsome. But the Lord tells Samuel not to look at their outward appearance, but at their heart. So Samuel asks if these are all of, his, all of Jesse's sons, and Jesse responds that he had Neglected to bring one. Oops, I kind of forgot. I left one out in the field. So David, uh, David is the one who got, had, was neglected, obviously. He's, and David's the youngest and the smallest. I think that's an interesting dynamic, too. So Samuel calls for David. And I, I can just, just imagine the scene with me. So this scrawny boy shows up from out in the fields. He's dirty. He's wondering what the heck is going on. He smells like the sheep that he's been watching over. And the Lord tells Samuel to anoint the boy David in the midst of his brothers, setting him apart from his family. And we are told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Did you you guys catch that? In that moment, we see the formation of David's identity. David is described later in 1 Samuel chapter 16, so just immediately following that, as being skillful in playing the lyre, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And those around him see that the Lord is with him. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I don't think it is a coincidence either that in the very next chapter we see the story of David confronting Goliath. This shouldn't be a surprise because David's identity was in God. He knew that. I can't help but think about how David's knowing that the Lord was with him played into the confidence and courage he displayed in that situation. And it makes me wonder if we had the same confidence in our identities if we would approach the giants that we face in our life in the same way. This brings me to, my second, or to the second point I believe God's design for the family structure teaches us. Our inheritance in Christ. We see this again in Matthew 9 when Christ says, our father knows what we need. In our modern Western culture, we think of an inheritance as a transfer of money or assets after a family member passes away. For one's inheritance, uh, for us, one's inheritance is a one-time future transaction. It is true that an inheritance refers to this, but it is also so much more. In the ancient world, an inheritance was not only a transfer of money or property, so much as the cultivation of a way of life. In biblical times, one's inheritance represented a passing of wisdom and knowledge from one generation to the next. We see this today with family farms or in the passing of the family business. We think of family recipes, uh, family traditions, or skills we have learned uh, from our parents, which are passed down from generation to generation. In my own family, I see this every time my wife makes a pie. For those of you who have uh, had the chance to taste food from our table, you know my wife is an incredible cook. Uh, Sarah makes almost everything from scratch, including her pie crusts. So she learned how to make these incredibly flaky and flavorful crusts over many years, watching her own mother make pie crusts. Sarah's mother, Vernel, learned this tradition from her mother, Sarah's grandmother, Anna. And I expect the ability to make the perfect pie crust goes even further and further back through their family tree. In fact, I'm certain that if I did an Ancestry.com search of Sarah's family, pie would play a central role in their family history. Recently, it's been my joy to watch my children begin to learn how to bake under the watchful eye of their mother. In fact, this week, one of my daughters apparently taught her friend a trick about cutting the butter. Um, when they made sugar cookies together. Who who knew there was a trick to cutting butter? But there is. I'm sure you all have stories like this, something you've learned from a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother. In the Bible, one's way of life, whether that was a shepherd or a fisherman or a carpenter, was often dictated by the knowledge they learned from their parents. So our inheritance is not about receiving a one-time gift of money or land, but about the invitation to participate in a generations-old way of life. Within this context, the family teaches us what it means to function in an economy, an order. When we understand our inheritance as believers, we learn to embrace the present power of the Holy Spirit and acknowledge our place within God's present kingdom. We see an example of the power of one's inheritance in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. As we heard in Luke 15, an ungrateful son demands his inheritance early from his father. The father agrees, and within a few days of receiving it, the younger son runs off to a far country where, within a short amount of time, he squanders it by living recklessly. This is an interesting dynamic, because when viewed through this understanding of inheritance, it not only means that the son squandered his father's gift of money, but he's also rejecting his family and the way of life his father, and likely his father's father, had built for him. Those hearing Jesus tell this story would have understood this. Because of the son's foolishness, he lost uh, the security he built within the place of his family. So the young son finds himself with no money, no skills, and no family name to call upon to help his circumstances. We know this because if he could have done anything else, he would have, uh, because he would not have ended up slopping around with pigs, a profession that would have been seen as the lowest of low within Jewish culture. To make matters worse, we learn a famine comes. And so circumstances beyond his own control leave him in a dire place of need and without a community of people who can help support each other when life becomes hard. The young son realizes this and decides to return to his father's house and to ask for mercy with the hope of being placed back into the family hierarchy at the same level as the higher servants. He just wants to be back in the hierarchy. He doesn't care about resuming his old place as a son. But we know how this ends, right? Here's the best part. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it And let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Despite the son's rejection of the father, the father has compassion on him and runs to his son so he can fix the relationship. He can restore that relationship and immediately restore the son back to his proper place in the family. It's such a powerful picture of God's grace. Through this story, we see a father's unconditional love, uh, and we see a picture of the gospel. We see the grace and mercy available to us when we recognize that we have squandered our inheritance and return to our father who is waiting to celebrate our restoration, not in some distant future, but here and now in the present. The family is a picture of the gospel in our lives because family, like the cross, is a messy place. At the cross, the Lord's plan of redemption plays out. Christ, God's only son, was mocked. His skin was torn apart. He was brutally crucified in front of his earthly family like a common criminal. Russell Moore again writes, The cross shows us how we can find beauty and brokenness, justice and mercy, peace and wrath, all in the same place. The pattern of the Christian life is crucified glory. This is true for our lives and our families as in everything else. It is at the cross where identity in God the Father is sealed and our inheritance is rewarded. I want to say that again. It is at the cross where our identity in God the Father is sealed and our inheritance is rewarded. So as I finish up today, I want to shift gears to my third point. Um, My daughter Abby gave me some some advice. She said that all good sermons have three points. So here's the third one. So for some of us here this morning, this understanding of family is really difficult to believe. Your experience with family has been painful, and you want nothing more than to escape from the family in which you were born. In fact, I need, I need to confess, as a father of four children, there have been many times over the last 13 years where I've wanted to escape from the family, my family, just for some peace and quiet. So more, more continues uh, in the storm-crossed, uh, storm-tossed family. Many of you learned in the training ground of your family a distortion of identity and inheritance. Perhaps a parent told you explicitly or implicitly that you would never amount to anything. Perhaps a parent saw you just as an extension of himself or herself. Maybe you inherited a biology disposition towards crippling depression or addiction. Or maybe you inherited a family system filled with strife or trauma. Perhaps your family background left you with limited economic or social means to escape a situation filled with despair or even violence. The good news is that Jesus not only taught us to pray our Father but followed those words up with, In heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's an analogy between what we are intended to experience in our family formation and the fatherhood of God. But the fatherhood of God, even in the best circumstances, infinitely transcends those earthly categories. Whatever your experience may be, when we build up our identity vertically in Christ, we become his beloved ...and have the freedom to live our lives knowing we have a Father in heaven who loves us. We are new creations and free to live under the gospel. When our identity is shaped by the cross, we become joint heirs with Christ... ...and our inheritance is secured. This is not just for some future reward in a world to come, you guys. Your inheritance is a new spirit in a new community that is able to overcome all of the snares of the the hurt and the pain and the brokenness and the loneliness that you may encounter. This means we become disciples of Christ who are together part of a larger spiritual family, not through the blood of biology, but through the blood of the crucifixion. I want to leave us with this final challenge, and again, I'm going to turn to Russell Moore because I believe he absolutely nails it. He writes, In too many cases... We have turned congregations into silos, packed with countless minivans full of individual families, coming to receive instruction and then return to their own self-contained units. The end result, especially in a rootless, hypermobile American culture, is the reality of mothers who are lonely and fear they're failing, but who don't want to say anything for the fear of being judged or starting up the mommy wars. Or fathers who are lonely, but who aren't supposed to signal that they don't know what to do about their son's pornography addiction or their daughter's anorexia. Our churches are filled often with unmarried or divorced or widowed men and women who believe that they are without family because there is no one to stand beside them in the church directory picture. And yet, the cross shows us that we need one another. We will never be godly families until we are brothers and sisters to one another. So brothers and sisters, let's commit together to be a community of believers who seek their identity vertically in Christ, who participate together in living out our inheritance in the present day as opposed to waiting for some future reward, who embrace the difficulty and the messiness of living life together with the confidence that we have as joint heirs knowing God's mercy is available to us. Amen.